Imagine you're all, all familiar with that, that uh, little line that is repeated, uh, when in Rome do as the... Yeah, you know it. Absolutely. That's right. And there's a, there's a reason that came up with in, in Rome. Now, it, it's a little encouragement to enjoy the culture, uh, a little encouragement to, to go with the flow. Of course, it can kind of be a subtle temptation, can it? Uh, a little whisper that there's a time and a place to do away with restraint, uh, a, a time and a place to do maybe some things you wouldn't normally do. You can kind of go a lot of directions with that, but whatever direction you want to go, you could find that direction in Rome. Uh, Rome was a place where you could find everything, every kind of person, every kind of food, every kind of religion, every kind of entertainment, every kind of idea, and you could find every kind of sexual experience. Whatever you were looking for in Rome, you could find it there. And you know what? That's the concern of the writer of Hebrews. As he's writing that church there, and that's where our passage is found today, and he's writing them concerned, man, how does faith survive in that kind of world? When you're living in a world where faith is attacked, where faith is mocked, where faith is tempted, literally in Rome, 24-7, Man, how, how do you survive that? And, and what he does for the bulk of the book is really just make sure there's a real genuine faith there and that that real genuine faith is growing. But then as he comes to the end of the book, he, he starts to take on some practical issues, some very critical issues of both the church and the world. And that's where our passage today finds itself there at the end of Hebrews. You can see it up here on the screen, but I encourage you to go ahead and open your Bible because we're going to be referring to Hebrews 13, 4 all through the morning. And once I read this, it disappears off the screen forever, I think into eternity, okay? So ha have your Bible open and, uh, and, and keep up with that. But you see here again, a kind of a short verse today, a simple verse today, and it says this, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous now if this is your your first Sunday with us or you hadn't been here in a while a couple of weeks ago we started as you just heard me referring to a series called honor and, and we have uh, we have kind of mined this incredible promise this incredible truth out of the Old Testament a great opportunity for your life and my life a promise from God he says, you honor me and I will honor you. Honor me with your life, big picture. Honor me with the pieces of your life, the decision you're gonna make this week, the meeting that you have, your marriage, your money, your relationships. You honor me, you make heavy, you make weighty, you make significant me in your life and I'll make your life, I'll make those areas of your life weighty and significant. So a part of this series, we're seeing how do we honor God in these various areas. Another way of honoring the Lord is when we honor what he tells us to honor. And that's obviously what our passage today brings us to, isn't it? The passage is telling us, God is telling us, hey, there's something I want you to honor. And, and, and folks, he is speaking to where the church, where society collide, how we deal with that. And he's telling the church, hey, listen, if you're going to survive in, in the world called Rome, you've got to honor marriage. Do you realize that's not just a piece of marital advice? That is a command on all of us, young, old, single, married, widowed, divorced. Every single one of us are to be looking at how do I honor marriage 
for our strength and well-being. Have you ever thought of your marriage when you're bickering about finances, when you're not quite seeing eye to eye? Have you ever thought about your marriage as critical to the health and well-being of the Heights, and ba- of the Heights Baptist Church? I'm not, I'm not just talking about hypothetical capital C church. I'm talking about our church Our health, our strength, our ability to do what God's called us to do, to be what God has called us to be, that's tied to all of our views and all of our handling of marriage. Now, as as the writer gives that command to the church there, they're living in Rome. And in Rome, there was two very dominant ways, two very primary ways of thinking that was very dishonoring to marriage. And that was asceticism and libertinism. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning just to hear those two words? Asceticism, A-S-C-S-M. <laughs> hey, don't worry about the words. There's an idea that is represented in those words that is very much part, not just of Rome, but of America. The ascetic, the, the, the issue with the ascetic is they saw marriage in the way. Now, the, it, the strange thing about that, that was actually kind of a religious concept back then. It, it was the idea that, that to get to the next plane of spirituality, to, to grow on your spiritual journey, that, that marriage and the things of marriage would get in the way of that. You need to clear that out of the way. Now, you and I would look around America and say, well, I don't see that in America. Well, probably not in a religious sense, but that idea that marriage is in the way is, is, is very much a dominant way of thinking in America today. You know, just since the 90s, 20, 20, 30 years ago, very short amount of time, we have seen the average age of marriage climb from the early 20s to the high 20s. Almost a decade of difference. I mean, stuff like that doesn't change, but a little bit at a time, and yet we've seen it change. And when that, and then when you study, when you research that, you kind of see some real common denominators. It's just not a goal. You know, you, you, you go through that age of 18, you go through that age of 22, it's just not a goal anymore. But it, it's, it's worse than this that they don't see marriage as a goal. It's actually seen as in the way. And when I go through those intersections of 18, 22, I've got goals I want to accomplish. There's things I want to do vocationally. There, there's things I want to do financially. There's things I want to do experientially, relationally. There's, there's things I want to do. And marriage isn't going to be a help to that. Marriage isn't going to bring that about. And so, see that view that marriage is actually in the way. What's strange is while that, that view, while that thought, that, that feeling is very much out there, it does not seem to be practically working for anybody. <laughs> because when you study it, it kind of comes up with some different answers. This week, kind of interesting, I love when there's publications that do something in line with my sermon series. This week in the Huffington Post, they wrote an article called Five Reasons to Marry Young. Uh, you would not expect an article like that today, would you? And uh, by the way, let me say this. When we gather as a body of people and we say we're going to honor marriage, I want you to understand something. There is no command to get married. There's nothing in Scripture that says you are to get married. That's not necessarily how we honor marriage. There's also nothing in Scripture that says to get married by a certain age. There's not an age that, that honors that more. So as I, as I talk about this article, I don't want you to think that's what Scripture is saying. Folks, the, the, the Scripture actually honors the single life. Check out the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There, there is value. God honors the single life. 
But so we have what this article is dealing with is not even necessarily encouraging marriage or marriage young, but it's researching this idea that if I put marriage off, some good things will come. Some better things will happen in my life. And so they, they came up with five ways, <laughs> five ways, uh, five ways. Well, there's actually four, you'll understand, and then there's a fifth weird way, okay? So four ways that it said, this is what happens when you marry young. You have, and, and I'm just reporting the details of the article, right? Are y'all with me on this? Is about to say these four things. Uh, that if you marry young, you have more sex. That's what the article said. You have less drinking. I thought that was interesting that they thought that was something to say, hey, this is good. If you marry younger, you drink less. I, I applaud that. Okay, more sex, drink less, you make more money, you're happier. And then, and then there's those four. And then the fifth reason was a little different. Their fifth reason for marrying young is the advantages of marrying older they can't find any common denominator that says if you wait till this age, if you wait till then, here's what comes. There's no data that supports that. And so you, you, you read an article like that and you think, well, man, hey, marriage must be a, marriage must be a pretty good deal. That, that must be a good thing to pursue. Yet it doesn't feel that way in our culture, does it? Another way we've kind of skirting around marriage uh, since the ni- 1990s, we have seen living together increase by 138%. Just since 2009, it has increased by 14%. And my guess is if you come back five years from now, it'll be an even bigger jump because that is, that's definitely how we're trending and you stop and think, well, you know, marriage has, has got all these problems and these costs. And man, it seems like, you know, if you live together, it seems kind of logic, right? I mean, you, you get some of the benefits of marriage, but you get to avoid the, the messiness of the breakup, the mess, you know, some of the hazards that go with that. It, it just seems like a real logical decision. Yet here again, when you, dis, when you study what's actually happening, people who live together have a higher rate of divorce when they do marry they have a higher rate of domestic violence and they actually don't get married. They have a higher rate of breaking up. So you look at the data and that doesn't really support going that direction. And yet there's this mood, avoid marriage at all costs. You know, folks, I, I, I wonder, are, are we so dishonoring marriage in the home? Now, I, I can't imagine saying that in a group like this. We think, no, well, I don't, we don't dishonor. We, we support marriage in our home. But you know what, folks, if you and I are not purposely honoring and giving value to marriage in our homes, at best, we're leaving our children with something neutral and maybe negative. Are we so dishonoring marriage in our homes, on the sitcoms, the news, the popular culture, the the conversations with our friends, that we've got this idea that marriage is a sinking ship? And what do you do on a sinking ship? Get off. But there's just one problem. The ship's not sinking. The overwhelming mood, what everything is telling us is the ship is sinking. But, but, but it's not sinking. Well, folks, who, whose job is it to get that news out? That would be ours, wouldn't it? You know, one, um, one real common dishonoring mantra uh, that you hear over and over and over in our culture is that half of all marriages, what? Yeah, they end in divorce. We all know that. Did you know it's not actually true? That is, that is not a true statistic. It's not a true statement. It's repeated by comedians. It's repeated on the news. Probably pastors repeat it more than anybody. I have. And it's just unfortunately not true. Do you know where that line came from? 
the 1970s. In the 1970s, U.S. Census census was putting their data together, doing their research. Now, when they're doing this, realize you're coming through the 60s and 70s where divorce had a just a skyrocketing spike like we'd never seen, especially when you're comparing that to the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And so they're measuring this, and and this was their this was their report on this projection. Half of all marriages are going to end in divorce. You know, it's interesting how a a piece of news will go out, a a, a statement will go out, and as a society, we just pick it up, don't we? There's just who knows why this piece of news means nothing to us, and this one we jump all over. Why this piece of data means something and, and this one doesn't. Well, we picked up on that line, except as it got communicated, the word projection got dropped out. And it was no longer that there is a projection that on this trajectory, half of all marriages are going to fail. It started being reported as an actuality. And nobody ever came back and told us that in 1980, divorce peaked. It reached its high point in 1980. And since then, oh, it's a little down, it's a little up, it's a little down, it's a little up. I mean, you know how trends go, it's it's like that. But it never reached that 50% mark. It never got there. And yet, folks, think about this here. If you're thinking about the difficulties of marriage and you're constantly hearing half of them fail, if you're in a marriage and you're struggling and you've gotten some difficulties, it's really, well, you know, what do you do? Gosh, they, you know, they, they all, you see that mindset? And yet it's not true. The odd thing is, folks, when, when marriage, marriage, at any decade, at any time in their marriage, when, when couples are surveyed, did you know that always the overwhelming majority say they're happy? Did you know that in America today, of all the married people in America today, 72% are married to their first mate? Now that, that just sounds, that almost sounds foreign to everything I've been hearing. I mean, that's, we don't promote that. We don't communicate that. Now, when I say of the people married today, some of them may have been married six months. <laughs> okay, we don't know where that marriage is going. Some of them will be divorced. But folks, 72% of the people married today are married to their first mate. Let me ask it again. Whose job is it to get that news out? Hey, listen, I would love it if the government would come alongside us and kind of support us in the truth on this. I would love it if this is what the news said. I'd love it if education would come alongside and back this up. I would love it if the news would report the truth on anything, right? (laughs) That's another story. But folks, I open up Hebrews chapter 13, and by the way, quite a few other places in Scripture, and God didn't put that mantle on the government or on the news or on education. He put that mantle on you and me. It's our job to carry the high value of marriage into the world. It's our job to communicate the good that is inside of what God designed. So, so there's the ascetic that sees marriage is in the way. Then there was the, the libertine. Now, this person wasn't antagonistic toward marriage. This person was more just apathetic toward marriage. Their big goal in life was, and this might sound a little more American, their big goal was sex. Sexual fulfillment, sexual experience, sexual orientation. Listen, it's just about me evolving sexually. If marriage plays some role in that, great. If marriage doesn't play any role in that, great. And that's where we have, folks, a a very sexually immoral world. And that bothers some of us, right? We look out there at our world and say, look, boy, look how immoral America has become. I actually have an an opinion. I don't know this as a fact. I don't think we've actually gotten really that much more immoral than we've ever been. We're just not ashamed anymore. 
We, we don't have to hide it anymore. We can, we can flaunt and just live it out there for everybody to see. I don't know that we've changed that much. We're just, we're just displaying it now. But we get a little concerned and we think, man, what, what, man, what if the, how do we get the world to believe like we believe? Newsflash, you're not going to. That's not going to happen. They're not going to come over to our understanding of sexual morality. But that's not my concern. My concern is the church going over to the world and letting the world start to shape biblical morality, biblical sexual morality. You know, and that happens for a couple of reasons. I think one reason this happens, I think you see maybe even a majority of the church is, is letting the world shape our understanding of, of sexuality because they, they don't want to appear to be backwards. They don't want to appear to be unintelligent. They want to be evolved. And, and you know, look how, look how I get it. And we want the world to applaud us. There's another little newsflash. The world's never going to applaud the church, even if you agree with them. Okay, but you've, you've got some, most in that group abandoned the word already. They, they abandoned it a long time ago, so they don't mind the world shaping the word. They've already left it. But then you've got a, an, another group of the church, maybe a lot like us, conservative evangelicals, who, who, who are maybe looking back, maybe specifically in the area of homosexuality. And we're looking back over the last 30, 40, 50 years, and we're thinking, you know, maybe we could have handled that better. <laughs> Maybe we, could have, maybe we could have worked through that with culture better and, and not created such an enemy, such, such an antagonism. Maybe there was an actual ministry there for us to have and we're kind of evaluating that right now considering where things are. And I would imagine, folks, as the church works through that, some churches are going to go too far. Some are not going to go far enough. I don't know about y'all. I, I pray for our church leaders. I pray for Southern Baptist leaders. Lord, give us wisdom. Guide us. Help us to land on where we need to be on this, how we need to be engaging culture, how we need to be engaging and ministering to the individual, how we make clear our message. But we're trying, we're trying to figure that out. But folks, here's the reality. We need to stop and ask ourselves, where is our understanding of sexuality coming from? Is it, is it coming from the news? Is it, is it coming from popular culture? Is it coming from our friends? Is it, is it coming from the word of God? You know what the answer to this question is? Yes. Yes to which one? All of it. <laughs> Now, I would imagine a lot of us in here, we want to say, oh, no, Mo, no, I, my mind is shaped by, by biblical morality. Yeah, and, and that's my goal too. I sure hope so. That's what I'm working at. Folks, if you're living and breathing and walking through America, you're being shaped by America. No, nobody can escape that. Our challenge is to, is to be able to fight that, to be able to control how much it shapes me. But then that means I'm aware. Why? I, I'm stopping it. Why do I believe what I believe about marriage, about, about sex, about homosexuality? Why do I believe what I believe about that? Because folks, the scripture is really very clear and very direct. And either my mind is being molded and shaped by that. It either uh, conforms to that or, or it, it doesn't. It, it, it's going in other directions. You know, I look at our passage today. And God says, hey, listen, I want you to honor marriage. And, and folks, I would imagine God would tell us. Now, there's lots of ways that you can honor marriage. But the next line takes us where? It takes us to sexuality. A lot of ways to honor marriage, but, but in this command right here, right now, I, I want you to honor marriage in sexuality. And, and God says, I want the marriage bed to be undefiled. 
Some translations will say, I want the marriage bed to be holy. It, the word picture there, is, it's, it's, it's really very beautiful. Uh, and, and it comes from, I think the language there kind of comes from a place you wouldn't expect. It's almost like it comes from the altar of God. The altar where, where sacrifice, the altar where offerings were given. And when you brought that offering, you brought what was pure. You brought your very best. Now, when we say you brought, usually you were bringing a sheep. Okay, and, and sometimes, and we're all like this, we're like this today, we don't bring sheep to church, but, but in our time, and our resources, we, maybe we're looking for a way not to necessarily give what's pure and what's best. And they certainly did in the Old Testament. The mindset was, oh, I, man, I need to take a sheep for sacrifice. They, let's see, get that one back there. The, yeah, the one with the broken leg and the eye poked out. Bring that one, yeah. And that other old one that's not producing wool anymore. Bring, yeah, bring, I'll give those two. And you know what God says to that? He says, hey, listen, if you're bringing me what's broken, if you're bringing me what you don't care about, what's left over, what what you don't even want, keep it. Keep it. See, the gift that God doesn't need the sheep, it's the the honor, right? It's, it's the, in the gift, I'm honoring, I'm giving value, I'm showing worth. And God says, hey, when you do that, you bring what is pure, you bring what is your very best. Now, you take that entire picture there, and folks, that's where kind of God is carrying us with this phrase uh, about, about sex inside of marriage. Hey, this, you come to this altar. That's what he refers to the bed as, this altar where you share what is pure, you share what is very best. He uses the word holy. That word holy means distinct, separate, apart from. In other words, this isn't a highway a lot of people travel through. This is what you share with one, folks, all the commands about sexuality come around this idea. This is what you share with one other. You know, folks, we're all relational beings and, and, and all kinds of people, all kinds of relationship meet our different relational needs. I, I have needs that mom and dad met. I have needs that children meet. I've got needs that friends meet. But there's, but there's this one place I go and, and there, there should never be a multiplicity of people for this place. It's a place that is shared with one. A place that is shared with one other. That's what is holy. That is what is pure. That is what is best. And every command about this flows out of that incredibly beautiful picture. And God says, hey, if you don't like that, if you reject that, if you rebel against that picture, what did he say? He said the, the, the sexually immoral and the adulterer will be judged. That's a hard word. It's a hard line. That's not a word we like. Not even in the church do we like that word. Don't like to be told we're going to be judged. We're going to be condemned. But that's, that's what it said. The, the adulterer, we know what that word is. That's somebody who's married with this person but having relations with this person. The, the sexually immoral word, that's kind of an interesting word. I call it a big umbrella word because it includes, well, everything else. It's the, it's the Greek word pornea. You can probably guess we get our word pornography out of that word. But it includes everything both in action and in mind that is illicit sexual behavior. It includes the idea of homosexuality, bestiality, incest, it, it, sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, in thought, indeed. It includes all of that. And God says, hey, if these are places you're going to go, if these are places you're going to live, if that's how you're going to exercise this, you will be judged. I don't know, I read that verse and it just sounds so simple, so direct. I, have, you, have you ever heard this? Boy, there's a lot of interpretations about the Bible, isn't there? You ever heard that? 
lot of ways to take it. I don't know. Do you, do you look at that verse and say, boy, there must be 10, 11, 12 ways to understand this. You know, I hear a lot of people say, oh, the Bible's very confusing. I don't know, folks. When you read that verse, do you go, boy, I just, I don't, I don't know what God's getting at here. I, I, I don't know what God's saying here. And yet we're, we're told, see, I think we dismiss passages. We keep people from ever going to passages by that mantra. Oh, there's all kinds of interpretations. Oh, it's, it's confusing. You know, maybe a little repetition would help us here uh, to understand and see what God is saying. Let's look at our first verse here, 1 Corinthians 6. Do not be deceived. Now, folks, I want you to notice that phrase right there because we're going to see it again in a moment. It seems like a lot of times when God is addressing issues of sexuality, he starts it or ends it by saying, do not be deceived. You know why? Because the world's going to try to tell you, we don't do that anymore. Well, well, God's changed. Well, that's no big deal. Well, we look at it differently. Well, there's all kinds of ways to understand what God is saying. Well, there's all kinds of interpretations. God says, hey, listen, what I'm about to say, don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, that they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You, 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 don't, you don't get to do that and then go to heaven. You don't get to say, that's no big deal to God. I'll do this the way I want to do this and it, and it work out all right. No, that's not how it works. But I love the next line. And, and, and such were some of you. You know, this passage is, is written to a church group and such were some of you. And you know what? It's just as true when Paul wrote that to the church in Corinth as if he was writing it to the church at the Heights Baptist. Did you know that in this room right here, right now, January 25th, 2015, are people who go under every single one of these words. And such were some of you, but you were washed. Hey, listen, if this is, if this is the identity, that's a big thing today, isn't it? If this is the identity I want, if this is the life I want, you're not gonna inherit the kingdom of God. But you know what? If you wanna be saved from that, if you wanna be rescued from that, if you wanna be washed from that, absolutely, God says, I got an answer, I can do that. Man, praise the Lord, right, folks? We've been saved, we've been forgiven. But understand, we've been saved from it, not to return to it. We've been forgiven of it, not to do it. Let's see what he says next. Let's go on. Ephesians chapter 5. or uh, Ephesians 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covenants must not even be named among you. One translation, translation says there should not even be a hint. I like that word hint because it kind of suggests saying I didn't do anything wrong isn't good enough. Saying, well, we weren't doing anything in there that... that if, 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 some, if I'm living in a way, if I'm looking in a way that it gives the idea that I'm involved in that, that's a problem. That's not proper among God's people. It, it's not okay to say, well, we weren't doing anything. If you're giving that appearance, it's, it's not okay. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Here again, look at the line that keep, God keeps wanting to take us on this issue. Let no one deceive you with empty words. One more passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body. And look at these words. We've seen them all the way through this. In holiness, separate, distinct, not like everyone else. If my way of approaching this, if my way of handling this looks like everybody out there who does not even know God, then there's a real problem with the way that, with the, how that's working. It's, it's to be in holiness. It is to be different. It is to be giving honor. I, I, I handle myself in a way that it gives honor and value to what God has said about this. It gives more honor to my feelings. It gives more honor to my needs. It gives more honor to what my, the person I'm dating says. I value what God says. No, here again, folks, I'm being a little bit redundant. Do you, do you read, I could put more verses, by the way, but do you read these and think, boy, there's just a lot of ways to take that. Well, there's just a, a, a lot of ways to understand. Well, I just don't really know what God is saying there. That's, that's not what's happening, is it, folks? Don't be deceived. Now, somebody might look at that passage and say, well, now, no, absolutely, sure enough. It's very clear what it means, but that was said back then. I mean, come on, times have changed. Certainly, God evolves a little bit, doesn't he? I mean, you're going to hold to a book written 2,000 years ago? You know, we, ha- we have a favorite verse, don't we? Uh, at least I think it's a very, it shows up in a lot of cards, shows up on posters. Jesus Christ is the same, what? Yesterday, today, and forever. Yeah, y'all know the verse. It's incredible. What a powerful verse. When you look back into the Gospels and you see Jesus forgive, love, and accept that woman caught in adultery, Because without him, she's got no chance of inheriting eternal life. But Jesus sees her and and, and Jesus calls her out of that and he loves her and says, you and I look at that picture 2,000 years ago, yesterday, and say, man, praise God, it's the same Jesus today. And praise God, it'll be the same Jesus 2,000 years from now. The same Jesus that loves, that forgives, that shows that compassion. You know where that great verse is found? Hebrews Chapter 13, verse 8. Four verses after our verse this morning. Oh yes, my friend, the love and forgiveness of Christ, it is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But so are Christ's views on marriage and sexuality and judgment. They're the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You know, I know a, a lot of us, we look at our, our world today and what do we do, man? It's just so, it's so different from what I believe, so different from what I want, and it, and it seems somewhat hopeless. You know, it's interesting the, how clear and direct this passage is, is sending us, because Rome actually was probably worse than America is. It probably had a higher view of sexual immorality than we do, and they probably had a lower view of marriage than we do. But God, the writer of Hebrew, they don't seem scared. Here, here's what you do. Here's, as, as the church intersects with culture, here's how you handle this. Here's what you do. Go out there and carry the message. Honor this. Honor marriage. And of course, folks, the scripture tells us how to do this. Over and over on, on, on marriage, on homosexuality, sexuality, on any issue. It says as you and I engage culture, we're to do it with gentleness and respect. I think we fail at that sometimes, don't we? We kind of get into the I'm going to win. I'm going to, I'm going to defeat. And we're supposed to go out there with gentleness and respect. 
This first Peter chapter three, check it out. As you and I engage that person who does not believe right, who does not believe like we do, who is living so bad, we're to actually give them respect. Why? Oh, we saw that last week because we give value to people. We, we honor people. See, folks, it all gets connected. It's all ta- every command, every ver- they all work together. So we go out there to carry the message of marriage in truth and we stand strong and we stand hard on it, but in, in gentleness, in love, in respect. Folks, you and I have to leave here today. We have to go to work, to school. We have to go into our relationships, married or single, and we have to honor marriage. Let me super quickly give you some ideas on how to do that real quickly here. Number one, we don't tell marriage jokes. Now, folks, I, let me tell you something. I like to poke, have fun, do all that too. We do that, even do that here at church. I'm just going to suggest now on the issue of marriage, n- no more. There's, there's too much of a, a growing bankruptcy of the value of marriage in our culture for, for us to, to make cracks on that. Does that make sense? So let's just do, make jokes on something else. Make jokes on the person next to you. Okay, we don't tell marriage jokes. Number two, and, and of course this kind of falls right out of number one, we don't speak negatively of our marriage or mate. Don't add to the overwhelming tidal wave of it never works, it's never good, it's, it's always bad, you're gonna experience it. Don't do that. You say, well, what, what, what if there's actually something in my marriage that I'm struggling with? What do I do? Talk to a counselor. Talk to a pastor. M- maybe, and I use the word maybe very cautiously here, maybe tell a friend or two. And folks, the ceiling should be two. I'm, what I'm saying here, I'm saying from about 25 years of counseling experience. If you're telling, when you get to telling that third person about what's wrong in your mate or your marriage, you, you're now in the wrong. You've now gone too far. You keep it very close. There's, you want to guard against who you would ever speak negatively about, about this with one or two. And here's the other challenge. You need to pick one or two people and just because they go to church with you doesn't mean it's the right one or two people. You have to pick one or two people that you're pretty sure might be spiritually stronger and more mature than you. You know what, even in church, and I'm not talking about church hypothetically, I'm talking about right here at the Heights Baptist, we tell each other what we want to hear too many times. I mean, we, we just do, you know, you come, oh, this is this, and I'm just, I'm just going to agree with you. Folks, we, just because we meet in a building that has a title out front that says church, doesn't mean we encourage and guide and help each other biblically all the time. So, sometimes we just want to make each other feel good and rub each other's tummy. If you're going to go tell somebody something's wrong in your marriage, you tell somebody you're pretty sure is going to say, hey, you know what, let's, first of all, let's pray about this, and secondly, let's open God's word and see what kind of direction it's going to give us in handling this. Okay, one more thing out of this. Never speak negatively. And I don't, you know, I say never use the word never. Here's the second time to never use the word. (laughs) Never speak negatively of your mate or your marriage with somebody of the opposite sex, ever. You are not under any scenario honoring marriage and honoring the marriage bed when you begin to cry on somebody's shoulder of the opposite sex about how bad things are at home. You're dishonoring, devaluing. Don't do it. I don't care if they are the most spiritual person you know. Don't do it. Number three comes right out of number two. Purposely speak highly. Go back to number three. Go back a page. Okay, maybe not. If I click it, 
Okay, number three said purpose to speak uh, positively. The first two don't speak negatively. The third one, speak positively of your mate in marriage. And the reason I use the word purposely, folks, don't wait till there's a reason to. Purposely means you choose to do it. You're looking for places. When they are telling a marriage joke around the coffee pot, when, when, when somebody is kind of taken off on how bad it is, and you don't have to attack somebody, you don't have to defeat them, you just throw out a positive word. Hey man, you know, I know it can be hard. I know it can be challenging, but I tell you what, if you work through, if this happens, I'll tell you, this is what I've experienced. You look for places to speak positively. And I'll tell you what you're going to find. You're going to, it'll change your marriage. Wherever the status of your marriage is, it'll change your marriage. If you work at thinking and speaking positively about them and of your marriage. Number four. Now, there we go. Purpose to show your children. Here again, folks, the operative word is purpose. It's not just being married in front of them. It's not just existing in front of them. It's talking to them about the the value of it. And when maybe on those occasions, you know, once or twice in your whole marriage where they see you apparently not value each other, it never happens in my home, uh, then you know what? That's where you got to make sure your kids, hey, that you know what? We have, we have problems. We struggle sometimes. But you know what? Because we value each other, because we value marriage, even when we don't always act nice, we still have to work through that. You have to love, you have to forgive. You purpose to teach, to train your kids positively on marriage. Number five, purpose that your mate knows how much you value them. I kind of thought of that one because I thought, you know what, I can't say I'm carrying the banner of being honoring marriage in the world if my mate at home doesn't know how much I honor marriage, right? Does that go together for y'all? You can't do one without doing the other. Man, you honor your mate in how you talk to him, the tone of voice. You, you honor your mate in how you love and how you forgive, how you prioritize, how you serve. Number six, last two here. Guard against anything. Folks, this is true for all of us. Again, whatever your marital status. If you're walking in America, then you're walking every day in a culture that devalues marriage. I've just got to be aware of that. Some of it I can stop. There, there are some things here that, that should not be entering your marriage, like pornography. You can control that. There's some other things. I can't control all the, the conversations I'm going to hear, the statements that are going to be made. I can't, but I've, at least what I got to do is get my guard up. I got to be prepared. There is an influence out there trying to shape and, and, and control how we think about marriage. So we got to guard against that. Number seven, teenagers and singles, date in a way that honors and keeps pure the marriage they're going to one day be in. Understand that. You go, you go to the movies tonight. You go out tonight. It, it, it's just a date, right? I mean, it's just a date. You live and breathe and act on that date in a way that honors the marriage they're going to one day be in. That marriage might be with you in three months. That marriage might be to somebody else in 17 years. But tonight, you honor the marriage that they're going to be in in 17 years. You honor the portrait of that altar that God has for them. You make sure the way you treat them, respect them, and relate with them honors that altar that God has for them and their mate 17 years from now. Folks, this is hard. This, you understand, whatever your age, whatever your marriage says, God has commanded you honor marriage. Whether you use these seven things, come up with your own seven, how are you going to do it this week? It's not the news job. It's not our government's job. It's not the school's job. It's the church. It's you and me. And folks, our strength in this world is dependent upon you and I getting it. Understand, this is a command I have on my life to honor marriage. 
That's a job you have from God this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your altar here in this moment. And Lord, every one of us, I'm confident, has devalued, dishonored marriage in some way, in some ways, in a variety of places in our life. I thank you for that song earlier, Our God Saves. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for saving us from those ways and those places that we ignored your commands. We ignored what your word said. We went with our feelings. We went with what we wanted. We went with what society told us. God, thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, I thank you that that no matter what word we came up under that list, that we can be saved from that. And Lord, not all of those words were sexual words. Some of those were coveting. Somebody who constantly wants what others have. Swindling. Always, always trying to deceptively get things from people. A drunkard. Well, there's all kinds of things that separate us from you. I thank you that though those things describe what we one time were, we can be rescued from that. Lord, if there's anybody in here today for whom those words still identify who they are, those words still describe and define who they are, I pray that today's the day they know your forgiveness of that. Today's the day they're rescued and saved from that. God, would you begin moving and working in those hearts for that toward that end right now? And Lord, for those of us that have been saved from that, God, help us to live like it. Not because it's a set of rules. Not because we're trying to work our way into heaven. God, help us to live like it because there's a, a dying world out there and my life and my love for your word and my living your word might be the very thing that attracts them to your way. I want to be that life. God, show every one of us where we can honor marriage this week and may we be obedient to doing just that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.